Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. In today's episode of History Sook, we're going to be looking at the exceptional life of the late Mr. Eugene Irving Heller. Mr. Heller was a businessman of note, working predominantly in the garment industry. He had several plants located in Chicago, Illinois, Columbia, Tennessee, Lewisburg, Tennessee, and Athens, Alabama. Besides being a leader in business, Mr. Heller will perhaps be most remembered as a community leader and philanthropist whose impact upon his society will be felt for generations to come. A scholarship in Eugene Heller's name will soon be inaugurated, allowing students to pursue a degree in higher education. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Mr. Dan Heller, the youngest son of Gene Heller. He's a real estate developer as well as a photographer of note. We are also joined by Mr. Dwight Fox, a friend and former employee of Gene Heller, who is here with some stories of his own. Mr. Heller, Mr. Fox, welcome to History Hook. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dan Heller, your dad was described by those who knew him best as bigger than life, in motion, impactful, helpful unconventionally wise. The list goes on and on. How do you best remember him? Uh, wow. Yeah, those are all apt uh, adjectives as I remember him for sure. And it's nice to know that people remember him that way. So all those uh, are lodged in my memory very much. Um, you know, he, he was an unusual character. Um, so many qualities that, as I reflect back, are very, very unusual. I don't know if I appreciated them as much as I do now, um, growing up. Um, but uh, he looked at the world in a, in a very unique way. He was very energetic, and he woke up every morning thinking, how can I, how can I do something good in the world? He was very, very focused on uh, production, on generosity, on making the world a better place. And he did that in, I think, big ways and small ways. In, in his way, um, lots of examples of, uh, of how he did that, for sure. That We're going to talk about some of those examples. Where do you think that comes from, that, that every day, wake up, make the world a better place? Where, where does that thought process begin with him? Um, I think at, on the deepest level, I think it comes from his parents and values that he was taught as as a kid his brother my uncle david was the same way i think applied in a different way um my uncle uh, was an educator my dad was in business and in their own ways i think they were um, on the lookout for making uh, a change in the world that that benefited everybody or as many people as they could did you know your paternal grandparents I did. Yeah, I knew his parents. Were they also very positive in their their mindset, would you say? I would say, yeah. Um, They were both uh, immigrants um, coming from Lithuania. Actually, I think 
Yeah, I think they were both um, definitely my grandfather. He he left Lithuania when he was fourteen. I think he arrived in the United States um, maybe when he was nineteen. He spent some time in Europe, but um, anyhow. Um, and my grandmother grew up in Chicago, and as I recall, I think she came over when she was a little little baby um, when she came. Uh, His name was Abraham Heller. Correct. Her name Olga. Rosenzweig? Rosenzweig, yeah. Rosenzweig. Yeah, okay. good good uh, research there. That's right. Um, so uh, your question uh, is, it, it really gets to the heart of who he was, but, you know, to say where it all came from is probably his parents um, growing up in a Jewish household where those values were kind of embedded in their everyday life. Um they weren't religious people. Um, my grandparents were not. He he was not growing up, but he grew up hearing stories of um, you know relatives that were more uh, religious. I would say, but I, I wouldn't call my dad um, you know big on ritual or sure. religion. But the values seemed the to values be were were deeply embedded. Yeah. So your dad was born in Bessemer, Alabama, in 1922. Mm-hmm. What brought the Heller family to Bessemer, Alabama. They, my my grandfather was in sales, and then he had a variety of businesses. And through the travels, they landed in Bessemer. I wish I had a more precise answer for that, but this was actually one of the indirect ways that my dad was fueled in life. Is that my grandfather was not successful in business, hmm. and. I think, you know, if I'm going to be completely uh, transparent about a lot of this, and, and why not? I mean, this is history, and it's not always pretty, but he, his father wanted to be successful in some sort of, of business, and he, he never was. And I think that, for my dad, was a, a bit of um, a source of uh, maybe shame or embarrassment for a little bit. And he talked about this, so it really fueled him, and I think... For my dad, in that way and others, I think having some degree of, of pain is often fuel for success. Sure. And other aspects of his life, um, I think, became fuel. You know, he was a little guy. He was picked on a lot. He was kind of bullied as a kid. We're, we're going to talk about that yeah. in just a second. Yeah. I find okay. that really fascinating. I, yeah. I think you made an important point, though. You know, as a student of history, if you look back at some of the most successful business people, there's a trail of failures that come before that success. Mm. There's much to be learned from that side of things too, right? You can learn as much, if not more, from the failures than you do. Your father failed on a couple of occasions too, if yeah. I remember from, from some of the stories that he told. Yeah. And he, he didn't, I, I would say they were learning opportunities. Right. I mean, before Oprah. He, learning he did, yeah. You know, before Oprah would say, you know, every, it's not failure, it's a learning. My dad lived that. He said, okay, what did I learn from that? Um, how can I bring that into my next business venture? But he was always learning. He was a lifelong learner um, in a way that uh, I, you don't see very often. So when your dad was a kid, uh, the family picks up and moves to Chicago, or back to Chicago for them, I suppose. I think they lived there for a time prior to going to Bessemer. In mm. Bessemer, I think they had a business called Heller's Department Store, which didn't didn't make it. Uh, so they, <laughs> they, they moved to Chicago. Yeah. What do you know about his growing up years in Chicago? What kind of a kid was he? He was, um, from the stories I heard from him and relatives, uh, cousins and whatnot, he was very 
energetic, rambunctious. He was deemed incorrigible by teachers repeatedly. And what wasn't known at the time, he didn't he didn't do well at school, and this was something that was really a source of uh, um, uncomfortableness for him, and 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 honestly, too, a bit of shame because uh, he he didn't understand why he wasn't learning the way the other kids were. And it turns out later, late in life, he was diagnosed with delect, uh, dyslexia, and not just a little case, but a big case of of dyslexia. And I would notice he would read with his finger he would he would follow the words with his finger and it was a technique that he was taught in his 50s to absorb the information a little bit better to slow down but he looked at the page like a jumbled mess he told me once and he through perseverance he kind of figured out how to adapt to this special aspect um, of the way his mind worked, and he used it to his advantage. He really looked at the world in a different way, my theory is, in part because of the way he processed information and the way he could interpret language. Hmm. Um, it was kind of a source of, of curiosity and, uh, and creativity. Um, so, yeah, I would say uh, that... That was another aspect too. In Chicago, they lived in the back of the business. I think uh, the front of the business on Max uh, on uh, Milwaukee Street. I think in in Chicago. So, the grandfather had a. He was in the garment business in Chicago. Yeah, well, not in Chicago. Okay. And uh, your your history and research is really remarkable. Uh, and going back to Bessemer, they did live above the okay. store, and that was a classic setup. Sure. You go to a lot of main streets in small town America in Europe. It was, you know, mixed use. Uh, everything was on the street. Um, you know, you had stores on the main floor and residences upstairs. It's very efficient for, you know, urban environments. Um, and that they had their store there. And we actually went back on maybe his 82nd or 83rd birthday. And we have some video of him going into the... Mm the same store, and then he started to tell us some stories, but it was the same handle, the same tile, and you could see these memories coming back, and he'd say, oh, and back there is where I got bit by a mouse or a rat or something <laughs> like that when he was two years old. Wow. Um, it was quite chill bump moments for me, because I love that history, and I love you know, kind of reliving that with, with him. I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, getting back to Milwaukee too, sorry to jump around, but uh, I don't think they lived there. They lived somewhere else. And my dad's um, father, for a period of time, was uh, a cementer in a raincoat factory. And uh, I think that was in Manchester, England, for a period of time. And then when they were in Philadelphia, I think they also worked together for a period of time. My dad might have been 16 or 17 uh, when he was doing that. Uh, not an expert by any means in, in that business. He did what he did. Um, and he worked with his dad for a short period of time. Learning how the equipment worked, there's a great story that, that's told that he kind of took it upon himself and found an interest in how the machines worked, how the sewing machines worked. And he would kind of delve into that and, and kind of make himself an expert. He's teaching himself how these things work. Very much so, yeah. He was very mechanically inclined. Um, he told me once, you, you've got to know how to do every aspect of, of this business. And 
from fixing the machines to, you know, how, you know, everything works. So um, he made it a point to, to know that. And um, it served him well, having that tenacity to learn. And he was, he was quite good at it. Um, so a spirited youth, uh, got in trouble from time to time. Uh, yes. Sounds like he had a fun sense of humor. He probably had some buddies who looked up to him uh, for the trouble that he was willing to get into. Yeah, yeah. They would play pranks. He had a, a close friend, Avers Wexler, who ended up being business partners together, and they um, went into business at, at Weather Tamer. It was called Storktown at the time. But he, um, yeah, kids, rambunctious. They played kid uh, jokes on each other all the time, and that was kind of a hallmark, uh, practical jokes. Uh, they talk about it in my dad's little the, the movie we made for him um, about uh, him filling up his uh, his friend's car full of snow in Chicago. <laughs> you know they had big snows there, so he just spent an hour or so shoveling show, uh, snow into the into the car. So when he came out to go to work, he when was, he tells the story, yeah. he he giggles about it still at, around his 80th year. He's still looking back with glee at doing that. Another yeah. story he tells with a, a bunch of little kids in the family getting in trouble, and they all had to sit under the table because they were in trouble. Yeah, and everybody was crying except for him. And they asked him why he wasn't crying. And he said, "I don't care where I sit." <laughs> you know, there was a there is a little devil in in him a little uh, bit. I think uh, very much so. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of a man child, is the way we kind of joke about. He was. Uh, uh, he he retained that boyish uh, curiosity and sense of humor. Many times uh, in his seventies and eighties, I'd go over to their their home in Nashville, and uh, my dad would be on his hands and knees playing with his trains. I love you it. know he he really never lost that, and uh, that's part of the uniqueness of who he was and. Um, and his charm, really. People would marvel at that, how he would take pleasure in just the, the smallest little, you know, little things that amused him. Being Jewish in the 1930s and 40s was not easy, not even in the United States. And your father and his family endured some anti-Semitism uh, in, in uh, their lives. Can you describe that a bit? And what was the advice your father got from his parents about dealing with abuse like that? Yeah. You know, I think my dad might have actually downplayed. He he talked about it with some frequency, um, but I think it was still downplayed. It was much more virulent and open at that time. And he was a little guy. I think in the army he was 128 pounds. He was five four. You know, tops. He was a little guy, but he could also instill fear <laughs> in people. And I think that comes from those days when. People picked on him, took his lunch money, all the classic things that were happening, him, calling him names and things. And I think, you know, it, it, that was part of the pain, I think, that fueled him, but it also kind of made him tough. And I think as a survival tool, which you see manifested in a lot of different minority groups, you know, they, I think what happens is um, you have to be tough. And as an added measure, his mother told him, you know, if someone threatens you, you know, punch them, 
you know, <laughs> uh, something to that effect, punch him in the face. Uh, so I never saw him. I did see him get in one physical fight one time. Really? Yeah, in, in an airport. And that was, that was another story for another day. But he was attacked first. He didn't throw the first punch by any means, but it was a very <laughs> weird, bizarre episode. I don't even know if you know this, Dwight. but uh, Yeah, I do. Oh, you do? Yeah. So um, – in any case, uh, he he was really a very gentle person, but he, he was tough when he had to be, and that was... And, and that's what his parents were trying to instill in him. Right. At five feet, four inches tall. Yeah. Uh, hit him first. Yeah. Because it's going to shock the heck out of him. It'll shock him. Yeah. Yeah. And in the Army, too, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, too, and... Um, you know, he has some experiences with with getting into into fights, and um, I, um, I I really believe that that was a a somewhat traumatic ongoing situation that he adapted to, and used as fuel to become successful. And that I think may be the hallmark of his life. When I think about all these different things, his challenges from dyslexia to his size to being Jewish to being you know, kind of socially awkward sometimes. Um, he loved, loved people. He loved being included. He loved all that. But there, were, there was a combination of things and hurdles that um, really fueled him in some ways and, and he, made him He used successful. those, for lack of a better term, disadvantages to make him stronger. Yeah, yeah. He, he was not a victim of any of those Circumstances. No, he never used it as, like you said, he used it as fuel to be stronger. Never saw himself really as a victim. He he really saw these as opportunities. Was it whether he used these words or not? His life embodied this. He would use these opportunities to make himself stronger, and he created a world for himself that he liked to live in, which is kind of unusual. Think about that. He he made such great use of the talents he had. And he was able to create a world for himself that he was the, you know, the master of his domain. He yeah. really could express himself in a way that few people had the opportunity to, to do. Um, so I, I admire that and I appreciate those qualities greatly. These are such huge lessons for all of us, I think. Uh, I, I was taken aback about the story about being five feet, four inches tall and how he saw it completely as an advantage because they just don't see you coming. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was a junior in high school. I wrestled 91 weight class. Uh, it, I was five feet, five inches tall. And uh, I sure would have loved to have had that advice when I was a kid because yeah. I never saw it as an advantage at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. It colored all of our, our view of the world too, at least mine. I mean, I, I think I... I, I definitely don't uh, – I, I share some of those um, uh, characteristics of just if you're confronted with a challenge or a, a, what you might call a failure, you just kind of pull out the, the elements that you can use for the next time. I think more than anything, that's, that's served me very well. Getting back to the, the fight thing, there was one point where he says, um, uh, if, you, if you're small and you're in a fight – talked about in the army he, and you're in a fight he said if you win you're a hero because you because you kick the guy's ass 
but <laughs> if you lose, the other guy's a bully. Right, right. So he says you, you can't there's no lose. Downside. You, you, yeah, there's no downside. <laughs> yeah, which I, I love that perspective. After he graduated from high school, Mr. Heller moved to Philadelphia through a contract his father had with the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Uh, working as a cementer, uh, making $80 a week, which he notably said was more than his father ever made. That must have felt like a, a little bit of a, a win already in his, his young life. He lived at 5150 Whitaker Avenue in Philadelphia at the outset of World War II. The house was an end place, if I have it correctly, on a street of row houses so common to that area of Philadelphia. Uh, it, it's a, a wonderful spot. Have you ever been been to that place? I have not been to that house. No, um, I, I looked it up. It's a it's a lovely little spot, um, and, and I think speaks to where he is and where he's heading when the war puts puts things on hold for for him for a little bit. We need to take a first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Gene Heller some more uh, and his life starting with World War II. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless sparkles like the sun. They're timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. 
I'm Tom Price. I'm joined in the studio today by Mr. Dan Heller, the youngest son of our subject today, Mr. Gene Heller, and also Mr. Dwight Fox, who is a former friend uh, and employee of Mr. Gene Heller. When we went to break, we were just on the verge of, of talking about your dad, Dan, as World War II is, is starting to happen. His brother joined the Army uh, pretty early on in the war, and then your father followed suit. Uh, what do we know about his time in World War II? He, well, their experiences were very different. Um, my dad was trained. He entered the Air Cadets, the Army Air Cadets. Um, he was not um, deployed. He didn't go overseas. Uh, his brother did and experienced, you know, all the horrors that you would imagine. He was a medic on D-Day. Mm. Um, and it just couldn't be more of a contrast, a horrific contrast. And, of course, you know, you read stories. We have a lot of the telegrams and correspondence between the two of them, and I've read some of them, and it's it's really remarkable, um, that period in time. It, it is the greatest generation. Mm. My dad spent time in uh, Wheeler Field, uh, this was after Pearl Harbor, but I think he did a lot of training in Texas. I'm forgetting the name of the base right now. Um, and then he was uh, shipped to uh, to Wheeler Field. Yeah. And uh, he looked at it as an adventure. He was a Boy Scout, and he said it was like the Boy Scouts, but just, you know, more. And uh, he, you know, it's the way he approached life. He, he liked kind of hanging out with the guys and doing projects. And, you know, he felt like he was part of a team and doing things and, um, and so his perspective, I think, was different. I think my my uncle had a had a, a similar perspective, but it involved the horrors. Right. Um, so um, your dad kind of had a plum assignment in a world war where there were horrible <laughs> places to be. He's Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. The, yeah. His his war experience was very different. The, um, the story was interesting he, that when he decided to go in the air cadets, which is potentially dangerous, his yeah. brother was really angry about it. Exactly right. That he yeah. put himself in harm's way when he didn't have to be. Right. Yeah, and uh, they were two sons of of Olga and, and Abraham. And um, David's thinking was, you know, one of you, if something should happen to to me, him being David, you know, his parents would still have a, a son. But for both of them to be in such high risk situations, David was angry. Uh, and they both were applied with the same, were enlisted with the same sort of enthusiasm. My my dad would, you know, uh, feel the adventure, um, and if just the air cadets was very dangerous, and he just thought that that's where he needed to be, and physically he, you know, fit the requirement. All, you know, he's almost too too small to be a pilot, but he kind of stepped on his toes a little bit to <laughs> to, to make the five four minimum. Um, but, uh, thank goodness he, he didn't have to serve, uh, overseas and, you know, who knows what would have happened, but, uh, it's a miracle my uncle survived. He was wounded several times and, um, decorated in every way you can imagine. Um, and, uh, yeah, very proud of both of their service. During his time in the Army, your dad completed three correspondence courses, which is kind of a big deal. He's taken advantage of the education that the Army might provide for him and actually saved enough money to start thinking about investing in a business after the war. 
came to a conclusion. Yeah. Um, what did he do after the war? Where did, did he come back to Chicago immediately? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, immediately, I'm not sure. He, he might have, but what you just described is uh, indicative, I think, of how he was always thinking about the future, um, laying a foundation for himself and a future family. Um, he would say, you know, a lot of the guys went out gambling. They spent m- money in ways that he wouldn't even consider, uh, drinking, women, gambling, all the things that you do in the armor, or most people do. And he focused on education, on, on learning things that he knew would serve him later in life and well. And, um, yeah, and he came out saving his um, – yeah, saving saving a lot of money that he did end up using in the business. So he was exactly right. And it's a kind of discipline that you don't see, usually. Um, it's just a different mindset. It's how he was raised, but um, it's also who he was in terms of how he could plan. His executive functioning was very high. Hmm. Um, he really thought about the future and the steps that he needed to take to make a better life for himself. And the information I got, he returned to Chicago, worked as a presser in a women's clothier for a time, which according to an interview he gave, he was fired from, but he learned how things were set up in the business. He took advantage of that side of things and became very efficient and fast, he mm. said, in the in the work that he did. Did he go to college? He went to Northwestern uh, for one year and... I don't know how great his grades were. I think it, I think he described it as somewhat <laughs> miraculous that he got in, but he did get in. He worked very hard. He got in, but I don't think it was the right fit for him. Uh, he um, wanted to be in the world doing things, and at that point, he just had the kind of tenacity where he knew he could overcome whatever obstacle was in his way, and his partner knew that about him, and that's why I think he and my dad went in business together um, because they could depend on each other in a very uncommon sort of way. Um, My dad trusted Avers to do the things that he needed to do in sales and marketing, and Avers trusted my dad to do all the production, to build the machine that created the garments. And it's a very complicated business where you can lose money right and left. And I think it was my dad's uh, tenacity and also his efficiency, like an OCD efficiency mindset that made them profitable year after year. You have to look at Evan Dwight is very familiar with this because he managed the plants for sure. But I I know that, that Dwight had a lot of... Uh, you know, um, input, and uh, he was part of the team that, that that built that in a significant. What was the name of that first business that that he and Avery started? It was called Storktown Products in Chicago, and they found, formed it in 1947 in and a they, thirty thousand square foot factory. That your dad strapped uh, a roller skates to his feet so he could be more efficient and move faster around this giant space. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of thinking. It combines his, like I said, his boyish sensibilities with efficiency. Um, so who does that? And I know Dwight has probably seen him many times when the factory grew and grew, but that was already the second factory. It started okay. much smaller with just a, a few folks, a few, but at that time, um, yeah, it was on Milwaukee Avenue. It had, had about 30,000 square feet, which for them was, was huge. 
And then it continued to grow year after year. Every year it grew, and then they moved to Columbia for more expansion room. We're going to talk about Columbia in just a second. I'm going to move here, but tell me about your mom first. How did your How did your mom and dad meet? Um, they were on dates with other people, I think. It was uh, some gathering, uh, maybe a Passover dinner uh, with friends. My mom was 19. My dad was probably 25 or 26. And um, they went on a they went on a date, yeah. And my dad, you know, sort of being elsewhere in his mind, I don't know how excited he was. She was lovely and fun and charming, and he described her as very, you know, vivacious, had an infectious smile. I think is the way he described it, which is all true to this day. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a story of how they how they got married, which is kind of, yes. kind of bizarre when you think about it, but it's one of my favorite stories from their life. And when people hear it, they can't believe it. But what I say and what they say, what relatives say, is they got married by mistake. And the way it happened is um, they went on a date. My dad kind of went on doing other things. And after one or two dates, my mom called him on a Wednesday and said, you know, a boy asked me out for Saturday night. What should I tell him? And as a joke, my dad said, tell him you're getting married. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. I mean, I don't, I don't think my dad in any way imagined that he would actually be getting married. But my mom said, really? He said, sure. He was joking. He was joking 100%. She slams down the phone and starts yelling, I'm getting married. I'm getting married and starts making plans Wow. For the, for the ceremony. And it was a few days later, my mom calls him back and says, well, you know, making the, the list, the guest list. Wait, a few days later. A few days later. I'm making... So he's kidding. Hangs he's up the kidding. Phone, or Doesn't, she hung up the phone on him. He goes about his business like that was a funny joke. And do, then several days later... Yes. Doesn't give it a second thought. She calls. <laughs> and then suddenly it clicks. Oh, she's serious. And then he you know, couldn't get out of it is what my mom described. She, she thinks it's hysterical. Um, my dad was at a point in his life where she met the criteria and then he started to rethink, well, maybe I can, maybe we can't get married. Yeah. She's, you know, she's this, she's that, all the very basic, uh, criteria that you would maybe look for in a, in a spouse at that time. And, um, but had to do some hard thinking pretty quickly. Had to do some hard thinking, <laughs> didn't want to disappoint her, set the wheels in motion without realizing it, and he just kind of rationalized and said, all right, I guess I'm getting married. Wow. You know, couldn't, I could do a lot worse. My mom was very capable, very pretty, and, um, you know, she had other characteristics that my dad, you know, valued, and he just wasn't in the mindset yet. I think he was still nursing a broken heart, too. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He had, there was a woman uh, named Betty who he had dated for a couple of years, and he asked her to marry him, and she said no. So she was kind of brokenhearted. Okay. He, he, I mean, he, he was brokenhearted. So when my mom came along, it just, it just seemed like the right timing. They were yeah. married for how long? I think uh, almost 70 years. Unbelievable. Yeah, 69, 70 years, Start, something Starting like that. with a joke. Starting with a joke. I love the whole thing. I absolutely love yeah, it. Yeah, that's So right. great. So the, the business takes off. They're in a 30,000-square-foot factory in Chicago. At some point, they decide Columbia, Tennessee is the place to move to. What, what's the impetus for moving 
from Chicago, a major city, to rural Columbia, Tennessee, yeah, miles south of Nashville. It, it it's quite a contrast. I think um, there might have been some other industries that had been migrating south generally because of you know labor laws, um, the availability of you know workers and incentives that were being made available to everybody. I think the actual catalyst was. They were, uh, he and his partner were on a plane or they're reading the Wall Street Journal and there was a little ad from the city of Columbia that was advertising for industry. You know, come work in Columbia. We have, you know, good people, you know, um, labor force and incentives. I think the city was offering some incentives like uh, abated property taxes if you were going to build a factory, for instance, or free water um, which for industry was an important element. Um, I think I think it was something like that. So hey, let's let's check out Columbia. We're bursting at the seams on Milwaukee Avenue. Um, let's see what that's all about. So they started meeting with officials here and talking about what might be possible. Right. So Storktown comes to Columbia. <clears throat> Do we know how many employees there were here when they first started? And what year are we talking about when they first came to Columbia? Um, as I recall, this this would have been the mid '50s um, when they first started looking into this, and um, they they on Depot Street in Columbia is where they actually they purchased that building, and it was where the whole factory was. I don't I think it might have been I don't know maybe fifteen thousand feet at that point, um, and then they built the factory on. Carmack and James Campbell on that corner that what's now Carmack and James Campbell Boulevard. It was a small, well, 50, it was much bigger, but it was, uh, that's where they built their first factory, probably in 1958, maybe, Mm -hmm. something like that. What were they producing? They were making almost exclusively children's jackets and outerwear, snowsuits, windbreakers, things like that, and some ladies' garments. And who are they marketing these products to? Where could people buy Storktown clothing. They, um, and and Dwight was much more deeply embedded in this. Um, As I recall, they were selling to like some top department stores, some specialty stores. They might have had maybe 6,000 small stores that they would sell to eventually, you know, in the 80s. And then, you know, like um, Marshall Fields, Bloomingdale's, you know, some of the fancier stores. And then they also sold to the Army outposts. Hmm. Um, And what I always thought was great as a kid is they were selling all of the Mickey Mouse jackets for the, the Disney company, all the embroidered kids' jackets that had Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse and all the characters the ones that they would sell at the theme parks <clears throat> and through the mail. My dad made all of those. So your dad was in charge of the production side. Mr. Wexler continued to be in charge of the sales side. So he's the one uh, getting those large accounts all over the country and world. It, correct, yeah. Um, it was mainly a domestic business. It was all made and sold here for the most part. But I know that Avers, who did all the sales and marketing, he would source the materials and the designs overseas. And he would go to Europe and and just as they do now, they do the trending and they see what's going to be popular in 12 or 18 months. Sometimes they'd work, you know, even farther ahead. Um, But they would design it. He'd send the samples. They'd make the samples in Chicago and then they would send it to Columbia. And my dad would figure out how to make it at a cost that 
was profitable and made the business sustainable. I love the story of how your dad learned how to make clothes, that he bought a garment, he took it apart piece by piece, cut those pieces himself again, and then put it all back together. He said it took him four or five times, but he got it. Yeah, he did. He did. No, it's another story of how tenacious he is. I mean, I couldn't imagine uh, doing that. You've got to have a passion for it. It's almost like he, it wasn't the passion for the garment industry. It's more the passion for the process and learning something new and being of value. So if I can learn how to make this and I need to know, similar to the machines, um, then I can teach other people and I'll have more a knowledge base. But then he hired people that had a lot more knowledge than him, but he knew enough to ask the right questions, to know if it was a quality garment or not. And he had an intuitive sense of this uh, in any case. But he locked himself in an apartment and he deconstructed a garment that he bought at a, maybe a Montgomery Wards or Sears or something and with a razor blade took apart every element, laid it out on the desk, and then he made patterns out of newspaper, and then he cut new material, and then he assembled a garment. He said the first one was terrible, (laughs) but he made another one and another one and another one, and by sunrise or the next day, he said he had a pretty decent garment. I love the story. It's it's absolutely incredible. an interesting story. In June of 1967, so by then it's they've changed the name to Weather Tamer, a new product right. name. Yeah. Uh, in 1967, Weather Tamer changed its focus literally overnight and went from making children's snowsuits to making blankets for the Israeli army during the Six Days War. Fascinating to me. Uh, what was his connection with Israel? Uh, did did he have connections there? Was he connected to what was happening? Uh, as that country is forming and developing. Yeah. At that time, Israel was a a, a concept um, and a story that was very dear to him and most, the vast majority of Jewish people at, at the time. And um, there's a very strong connection and still is. Um, but he wanted to do his part. Israel it was in a very dire um, situation um, on the verge of being... Uh, attacked um, by the surrounding countries. And um, it's a part of history that folks today don't really go back to understand what some of the roots of the, the conflict, this and that. Not to go down that road, but I would say that he wanted to do his part, and the way he could was to manufacture something that could be of use in a very dire situation and having been through World War II and hearing the experiences of his brothers, brothers, feeling a strong connection to the people that pioneered um, the the country and understanding, you know, the desperation. I have a factory. I can at least do this. And and that's kind of what his mindset was. And it was true of a lot of people at the time. It it was a very difficult uh, time. Yeah, Um, I think we often forget Israel's been such a strong country in most of our lifetimes. Uh, at least in our, our memory, of course. Um, but those were dire days, right? Their survival was constantly under threat. And uh, I, I think it's an amazing story. And one of those things that helped help create that strong alliance between the United States and, and Israel. So I, I think it's a wonderful story. We need to take our last break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about Weather Tamer and uh, the legacy of Mr. Gene Heller. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. 
Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we are talking about the extraordinary life of Mr. Eugene Irving Heller, uh, who was the founder of Weather Tamer, which was a clothing manufacturer uh, here in Tennessee and in other cities and states as well. Uh, we have with us today uh, Dan Heller, who is the youngest son of Mr. Gene Heller, and also we have Dwight Fox, who was a friend and employee of Mr. Heller for a number of years. Uh, Dwight, when did you get associated with Mr. Heller? Where did you meet him, and in what capacity did you work for him? Well, as I was a senior in high school, there was an ad in the Daily Herald for a production supervisor at Weather Tamer, and I was about to graduate, so I sent a resume in for that particular position, and I got a response back that they wanted to speak with me. So I came down to Columbia before I graduated and met with Mr. Heller and had just a great conversation, was a little intimidated, I might say. But uh, then I was offered the job. So right out, of, right out of college, I came back to Columbia, my hometown, began work, was drafted after about three months there. And then after I spent my time in the military, came back to work at Weather Tamer and stayed there for about 17 years. Wow. Uh, and what was your job there? I started just as a management trainee. Uh, my desk was uh, uh, a used door over two filing cabinets. And, uh, you know, we weren't big on amenities, and that was okay because it really worked out. But uh, but uh, then worked my way up to the plant manager over the years, and uh, from there, when uh, the company sold to Gerber Products, became vice president of operations. 
Wow. About how many employees did you work with when you first started there as a manager trainee? We probably had about 300 employees at that particular time. Uh, there were several additions to the building after that. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end, we had about 1,600 employees in five different locations. So that was, uh, it, it grew. It was a great product. Dan mentioned some of the uh, some of the companies that uh, bought the products. They were mostly upscale they were upscale companies. Uh, we did have two different product lines. One was a little bit smaller, a little bit cheaper product. Went to Sears and some of those uh, type uh, stores. But the majority of our stores were Saks Fifth Avenue, those type products that uh, carried the upscale products. So we we're very proud of the Weather Tamer product and the quality. I think that was one of the things that Gene Heller instilled in us is that anything that went out that door had to be a quality product, regardless of the price point. And if you go to Etsy and Google Weather Tamer, you will find people reselling the Weather Tamers, authentic Weather Tamer, you know, from the oh, 70s, vintage. Uh, Etsy, Have you done that? eBay. Uh, eBay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be getting some for sure. It's, it's kind of amazing the job that you did and the whole team putting garments together that are still being used today. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable to me. Yeah. But, yeah. So you're right out of high school. You have your whole life ahead of you. Lots to learn, obviously, uh, being in the military aside. What did you learn from Gene Heller? A lot of life lessons. Uh, I, Gene Heller was probably the second most influential man in my life after my dad. Uh, he taught me the appreciation for life. He taught me the appreciation for uh, other people. He uh, taught me how other people should be treated the way you want them to treat you. He was very adamant about that. Uh, one of the things I shared was that he always thought that you should reward people for what they did well. Uh, even if it was just a small trinket, like a little knife that goes on your keychain, or maybe a silver dollar, or you know some little trinket. Uh, but when you did well, he thought you should be rewarded for that. And that was, uh, to me, that was an amazing thing. He, uh, he was an innovator. Uh, we did things like uh, we called them mother's hours, and this was prior to what became flex hours and was very popular in the industry for a while. You know, he did this because he thought it was the right thing to do because he had mostly a female workforce hmm. and had children. Uh, they had children to, in the mornings to get off to school. They had children in the afternoon to pick up. So he would let them work modified hours. We needed the we needed the employee, and that was a good way to keep the employees. So it was very innovative. Hmm. Was this a three shift company? Were you working around the clock? No, no. Okay. It was primarily a one shift. Occasionally, okay. there was some overtime and some Saturdays, but primarily a one shift operation. Talk to me about production levels. About how many garments are you producing in a year's time? Oh, gosh, a bunch. <laughs> I, I I I really don't know. There, you know, thousands and thousands of dozens. Uh, uh, in the garment industry, we measured uh, output by dozens and not okay. just in units at that particular time. You know, we would uh, make runs of hundreds of dozens at a time. And the official that official weather tamer jacket that Dan mentioned uh, that's around with a little roll-in nylon jacket with a roll-in zipper collar, which was the model for a lot of, uh, of uh, other companies to make that type jacket. Uh, you know, we made hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, so, you know, just a, a big, big company. 
Amazing. Uh, your father became a philanthropist of note too. He was involved in lots of fraternal organizations, Dan. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit about that side. And, and uh, one of the biggest things that we want to talk about today is a scholarship uh, that will have his name associated with it. Uh, tell us about that endeavor as well. I think it's very much in line with him being generous, wanting to invest in people, um, all people. Um, I think Dwight touched on it somewhat. He would put positions in um, positions of power, anybody that could do the job, you know, men or women, um, black or white. It didn't matter as long as you performed and could do could do the job, he would take a chance. And he liked to invest in people's talent. And, um, you know, the scholarship, I think, ties very much into that idea. Um, and he was he, he loved Rotary. Rotary was a big part of his life. He would go every Thursday um, and enjoyed the, the fellowship. He enjoyed uh, the connections and the people. He just uh, he would lead the music, I think, at some point. He, you know, he was very musical and very artistic too. He was a painter. But all that being said, um, the scholarship I think he would really uh, appreciate. He's done similar things in the past uh, with my mom. Uh, investing in educational endeavors and projects and things. And um, they're both very committed to that. So my mom is happy that we're doing something like this. My family is, is, is happy. And I think my dad would be excited to know that there'll be a, you know, a scholarship in, in his name. The Eugene I. Heller Memorial Scholarship will support graduates of a two-year community college with a 3.0 GPA or better who have also been accepted into a four-year college to continue their education. The $5,000 award can be used for tuition and other school-related expenses. Um, so you're going to – your family will be rolling that out here in the coming um, months, and uh, uh, it will have a, a lasting impact on our society. Yeah, thank you. And Rotary really is, uh, they're the impetus in a way. We had a discussion um, about how we might continue his legacy in a way that my dad um, would love and appreciate and also tied into Rotary, which, again, I can't emphasize enough how much uh, we appreciate Rotary and, you know, how much he loved being accepted and included in that group. So it's, it's a nice partnership. We end today's episode with a quote from Mr. Gene Heller himself. Here he is in his own words. People don't think they'll ever die, including, uh, you know, they claim until you're after 30. And frankly, I have never reached that conclusion. <laughs> I can't imagine the world without me. I love the laughter uh, as, he, as he speaks. Although we have to know a world without Eugene Heller, his impact and his wisdom will continue on for generations to come. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Dan Heller, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate your words, and uh, we appreciate your father and your family and what you, you do. Dwight Fox, thank you for your insights as well. Uh, uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you to our listeners. Please join us again next week, won't you, as we continue to connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Yeah, I just want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat, yet you have no balance to anything that you say. You act like a bunch of Southern You are ridiculous. You're a horrible show. You're a horrible representation of Tennessee. Y'all are disgusting. You're disgusting human beings. And either balance it out with someone who has a half a clue what they can talk about. You got a bus driver up there acting like he's better than him just because of what? I have no idea what his points are other than what Tucker Carlson told him what to say. Y'all are disgusting human beings. You need to get off the Three Dudes with a View, triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM. I'll never forget the day I decided to go out for the football team. Mr. Banks, the JV football coach and my history teacher, asked me to stay after class. I thought I was in trouble. He said, hey, Darius, have you thought about going out for football? I think you'd be great. Fact is, I never played football. Fact is, I never had anyone tell me I'd be great at something. So, with no experience at all, I signed up. And a week later, I padded up and was running drills on the field. I never was great, but playing high school sports was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I was accepted by my teammates, and I learned that when someone believes in you, you can believe in yourself. Encourage a student you know to take part in a high school sport. This message presented by the TSSAA and the Tennessee Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. 
folks, baseball is back, and WKRM 103.7 is excited to bring you coverage and sponsorship options for this 2023 season. That's right, Taff, and this year our advertising partners had the option to sponsor our live Little League coverage, Atlanta Braves coverage, or a combo package that carry both of them. This area loves baseball, and what a great way to support the community by helping us bring coverage of our Little League, but also taking a moment to promote local businesses. People are crazy about the Atlanta Braves. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's something special and timeless about baseball radio broadcast. There sure is. So visit Front Porch Radio TN and click on the blue Advertise With Us button for more information about how your company can sponsor baseball of all kinds this season with WKRM. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.